Have you ever stopped to think that virtually everything we use in our daily lives is based on technology? Even further, do you understand the software behind this technology? Welcome to The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. In today's program, you'll hear how software is created and implemented, why it's written the way it is, and learn from its success stories, proven best practices, and significant failures. Now, here is your host, Martin Lacey. Hi, and welcome to The Art of Software. I'm your host, Martin Lacey, with Lacey Software Technology Corporation. In today's episode, we're going to peel away the layers of security within the enterprise, discuss the objectives and outcomes, methods and practices for understanding and protecting your business from cyber threats. We will then home in on cybersecurity from a software architecture perspective, discuss the security objectives architects should be trying to achieve with their designs and how they impact the new paradigm of microservices and containerization. We will pose critical questions you should be thinking about with guidance in how to formulate your answers and build your own cybersecurity strategy. To guide us on this on today's journey, I'm pleased to introduce our special guest, Neil Rerup, who has just written a book on the subject called Hands-On Cybersecurity for Architects. Neil is the president's chief security architect of an architecture firm that provides architectural services, enterprise, and solutions to enterprises across North America. He is an enterprise architect who came out of the world of cybersecurity. He has worked on a number of projects for enterprises around the world and has worked in various architectural domains, including security, networking, and applications. He was responsible for the security architecture for the Vancouver 2010 Winter Games, a Winter Olympics, securing the critical infrastructure of numerous utilities, and is also responsible for large enterprise solutions for companies around the world. Welcome to the show, Neil. It's a real pleasure to have you on board. Thanks, Martin. Uh, nice to be on board. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about your background, how you, uh, how you came to be in the cybersecurity world? You know, how, how, did that, uh, how did you come into this? Well, I got into uh, cybersecurity early and a bit by accident. Um, at the time, I was uh, working for a com- little company called EDS. Uh, do you remember EDS? Uh, it was started up by Ross Perot, a little guy with big ears that ran for... Yeah, electronic uh, data services. Yeah. Well, yeah, I remember him. I, I remember him. And, yeah, that, he was quite the character. Yeah, loved his charts, loved, loved his numbers. Well, at the time, I was uh, working for EDS as their uh, senior NOC lead, Network Operations Center lead, uh, up here in Vancouver, and uh, working on a particular uh, project called PLNet, the Provincial Learning Network, which was, um, the, at that time, the largest public network in North America. It connected all the elementaries, high schools, and colleges up here. What, what year was oh, that, there, Just to... Go ahead. What year was that? I'm just trying to frame it in. Well, that was in in 2000, right at the turn of the century. Okay, okay. And, uh, um, like, before that, uh, I've been in IT since 1988. Um, In fact, you could say I've been in IT since uh, 77. My dad used to be a a teacher at one of the local colleges, and they had started up a program on uh, BASIC back in 1977 when I was in grade 7. 
and asked yes. whether I wanted to uh, try it. So I did, and I've been in IT since 77. <laughs> awesome. Yeah. Anyway, so with EDS, uh, my job description had one line. It said, also responsible for security. And that's the way yeah. security was back at that time. You can see how little bit of a thought it was, just a blip. Yeah, uh, security really hadn't started up yet. Yeah. Anyway, we had a uh, um, people were starting to become aware of the issues with security, so we had another project out of the Vancouver office where the project manager um, came to me and asked whether I could do a security assessment of that that particular customer's servers. I'd never done anything like that before, and I thought, sure, why not? So I looked around EDS, figuring, you know, at that time EDS had uh, 120, 130,000 employees worldwide. So I figured somebody must have done something. Couldn't find anything. Couldn't find any standard way of doing anything, and which is not surprising considering at that time security was just a gleam in everybody's eye. Mm-hmm. Uh, at that time, we had a, a CEO by the name of Dick Brown. And Dick had this uh, habit of sending out emails from various different places around the world saying, hey, it's Dick Brown uh, sending an email from Kuala Lumpur to say how good our team is doing here. Well, as the knock lead for my team, what I try and do, tried to do was keep uh, our guys' um, morale up and keep everybody laughing and that sort of stuff. Yeah. So I responded to him, to uh, Dick, saying, thanks for the email, Dick. By the way, can you tell me where I could find some information about doing security assessments? Okay. So there, this is this little network operations guy up in Vancouver sending an email to a CEO of a Fortune 20 company at that time or responding to it. Little did I know that he took that email, forwarded it over to the senior VP that had just started up a uh, security team in Herndon, Virginia to support the CIA and the NSA. That VP flew up to Vancouver, met with me, and I became EDS's very first security person in Canada, even before there was executive sponsorship for a security team. Wow. So, as a result... I ended up being thrown at every project that EDS had in Canada. Uh, worked, uh, the very first project I worked on was the bond selling out, that was outsourced to EDS by the Bank of Canada, which is the Canadian version of uh, your Fed. Um, did uh, um, worked on uh, outsourcing projects of HR outsourcing from some of the major banks. Uh, at okay. that time, they were starting to set up web portals for uh, large enterprises. So I did the security for for the uh, city of Calgary uh, back in, God, 2002, 2003. This was just before the G8 conference that was up here. Right. And at that time, turns out that uh, um, we had, the uh, uh, city of Calgary had, a number of servers where it looked like they had just been hacked. The city of Calgary liked what I had done for their uh, uh, portal, so they asked me to come in and take a look because it was rather urgent that all that be cleared up prior to the G8 conference. Right, of course. Uh, so, so we've got into that. Um, it's it's been a roller coaster of a ride. Now, do you remember the Enron scandal? 
where people were fudging their stock prices uh, based on how they were recording things on their books. Right. Yes. Yes. That that was the Enron was the oil corporation, right? Exactly. Well, yeah. that was also their their accounting company was uh, Arthur Arthur Anderson. Yes. Yeah. Well, EDF was also doing the same sort of thing. So this is in 2004. EDS's uh, stock prices went from something like, and forgive me because this is a long time ago now, yeah. but like $112 down to $8 in three days. Oh, my. <laughs> yeah. Well, when that happens, what do companies do? <laughs> they lay panic. off people. <laughs> yeah, they panic and they start laying off people. Yeah. Well, I managed to survive nine bosses over that four-year period, and finally, um, uh, I got laid off. Now, I had told my very last boss to give a phone call to the chief security architect from EDS down in Plano, Texas, because I knew that guy needed help. Um, he didn't. I got laid off, and that was in May of 2004. Uh, I took the summer off, looked locally. At that time, security wasn't really taking off. wasn't quite, um, quite was still early. mainstream yet. Yeah. So I reached out to the chief security architect from EDS in, in September 2004. He brought me on as a contractor, and I became the lead security architect globally for EDS as a contractor responsible for application security. Excellent. So, do you remember Microsoft's uh, Trustworthy Computing Initiative? Yes, I do. <laughs> so, for those that don't, that was when Microsoft's name in security used to be really bad. Uh -huh. That's because the way they coded their products was really poorly done. Yeah. And it was filled with vulnerabilities. So what they did was they created a secure development lifecycle that the entire project was called the Trustworthy Computing Initiative. And as a result, Microsoft security, uh, the, the quality of their products went from god-awful to really good. Yes. But it yeah. required a culture change. From the so ground up. From the ground up. Yeah. To this Day, their code still is a bit of a mess simply because it just you got to remember when Windows started being created it was sitting on top of DOS yes. and then they created Windows separately and DOS became part of it with the virtual machine that was the first mm, right. the virtual when they, machine when they created the Windows NT architecture 98 exactly. I think exactly so the code was all was spaghetti code. It went all over the place. It was hard to understand how everything was put together. And so by nature, you're going to have vulnerabilities in there. Yeah. You're going to have uh, bugs, that sort of stuff. Well, they've done a hell of a job improving their code. And that was all initiated by that trustworthy computing initiative. Back with EDS, what I ended up doing was as the lead security architect globally for application security, I, I brought in um, the people that created the Trustworthy Computing Initiative with Microsoft. Okay. We created, we created a software development lifecycle for EDS because at that time, EDS had 40,000 developers worldwide. 
Right. But they weren't including security in their processes. So what we did was we created a secure development lifecycle for EDS for all their application developers to follow. And it was, we had a week-long workshop where we had the guys from Microsoft come in to help with, uh, uh, guide us through that process. The SDLC that we created was EDSs. We also had Marianne Davidson, uh, who is this, who is the, still the chief security officer from uh, uh, Oracle. Um, she was uh, um, uh, came in to talk about what Oracle was doing as well. That way, we had a, a couple of different ideas of large organizations. Right. Excellent. And it was really successful. Anyway, went from there um, because I was a contractor, and uh, that means contractors come and go based on the whims of CEOs. Yeah. Um, moved from that, did PCI uh, work with Best Buy, um, ended up being the chief, uh, the enterprise security architect for the Vancouver Olympics. Yes. Um, and since the Olympics, since 2011, I've done a lot of work with a number of different utilities here, uh, not just here, but south of the border as well, um, as well as working with NIST. With uh, NIST has a um, uh, standalone organization that uh, they run called the National Cybersecurity Center of Excellence. And what the NCCOE does is they provide reference architectures to various different industries. Well, this is around the time of Obama's uh, executive order for improving the secu- cybersecurity of critical, critical infrastructure. Right, so I I, yes. NIST. Right. So I was working with NIST and the NCCOE to create reference architectures for use the utility space. And I've been doing a lot of that since. That's that's really cool, and I actually want to dig into the reference architectures that you've, you're describing, the uh, peeling away the onion, so getting at the uh, security from the enterprise, moving ourselves into the application space, and drilling into the application security architecture. We have to take a, a quick break here, Neil, uh, but when we return, let's dive right back into this. This is uh, really interesting stuff. Uh, it's great to hear your history, and now let's sort of move into uh, peeling away the technical onion and exploring what uh, what you've done with the EDS and Oracle and all these corporations in creating the secured um, software development lifecycle. So again, thanks, Neil. We'll be right back with The Art of Software and um, talking with Neil Rero. Thank you very much. When it comes to business, you'll find the experts here. Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Welcome back to The Art of Software. I'm Martin Lacey. 
uh, your host, and I'm talking today with Neil Rerup, who has written an awesome book called The Hands-On Cybersecurity for Architects. Uh, we're just going through various layers, how, first of all, talking about how he got involved in cybersecurity from the very ground in the early stages when security wasn't even really um, uh, a concern. Uh, and now uh, it, of course, is uh, prevalent in everyone's minds. It affects all businesses and every personal device out there. So we're going to continue on with our conversation with Neil, dig in a bit further, talk about the layers of security, what's now in place, uh, and what he's done and recommends with the application architecture. So again, Neil, welcome back. Uh, if you can uh, perhaps peel away some of the onion for us and um, walk us through the layers of, um, uh, of the security uh, infrastructure until we get to the application architecture requirements. You got it. Okay. So what a lot of people tend to do, and it's a mistake, is they view security as separate from the various different layers, uh, like networking, infrastructure, application information, um, some of the other uh, areas. When you look at any architecture, you have to keep in mind that security is a component of each one of them. If you try and have separate uh, security as a separate standalone thing that you tag on after the fact, you're going to have vulnerabilities, and you're going to be a lot. It's going to be a lot more expensive um, to to put the security or make your solutions secure. Right. So when you when you start off with any solution, do you know what the three components are for any solution? And I'm not talking technical. Um. Well, you've got people, users. Exactly. That's one. Uh, you got the systems and the information. Okay, so systems information, that's the technology side. That's number two. The and third content. are processes. Oh, the processes, so, okay. Right, so every solution has people, process, and uh, the third P is products. So right. technology, right? So you can put in a, 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 a server, but putting in the technology is just the first step. Who's responsible for it? Who's going to take care of it? Okay, that's the people. Who's going to use it? That's the people. How do you maintain it? How often do you maintain it? Who, how's, what's the process for getting approvals for putting in patches? That's process sizing. So any solution that you put together always starts off with those three components. People, process, and product. Okay? That's standard in any architecture. I've right. come in the last year or so to realize there's actually a fourth area. Now, not everybody uh, agrees and has gotten to this point, but my own view is that the fourth one is governance. So that's policies, that's the executive level with direction, that sort of stuff. That's right. governance. So really, you can have uh, th that approvals thing. You can view that as a process. You can also view that as governance. So there, there's, to me, there's four different areas. Now, if we just look at the technology stack, because that's where, where you're focusing right now. Yeah. If you think from the OSI model, working your way up, you start off at the network layer. 
on top of the network layer is infrastructure, servers, load balancers, um, that sort of thing. Yeah. Next layer up is going to be the applications. So your SAPs of the world, your web applications of the world, your, that sort of thing. And your application, application pieces, you know, caching and all those kind of things. Exactly. Next layer up is the information itself. Yes. Each one of those layers supports the one above it. The top layer is the business. Everything you do always has to support the business. And that's the one issue I have with a lot of security people. Have you ever heard people complaining about security saying, God, those guys are just throwing up roadblocks left, right, and center? <laughs> yeah, it's, you know, I just say it's, uh, it's the cost of doing business. I mean, you want to operate securely, right? Yeah. You don't want to get hacked, but, so it's, you know, sure, the lock is, is a pain in the butt, but, you know, you put a door in your, a lock on your door for a reason. Exactly. But. Here's the thing, though. In an organization, who's going to say what's right? Just because a security guy says you have to do something doesn't mean you have to do it. What if what the security guy is saying is running counter to the business goals? Right. Who's right? And that's where the governance, I guess, comes in, right? That's the putting the business that's first. That's where your strategy That's where all that comes in. So that's the reason from the governance side of things, you want to have the policies and standards. Mm-hmm. Those policies and standards, if written and in an inclusive manner where you're, you're not just a security guy writing policies and standards, you're also getting uh, the server guys to be involved in the creation of these things, the network guys, the application guys, the business people. If all these people are included in the writing of these policies, they'll own the policies. Right. And as a result, now you can point to something and say, we have a policy that says this, and it's the organization has signed off on it. So it's no longer me as a security guy saying, you have to do this. Now it's the organization says, you have to do it. And you're just following policy, implementing policy. Exactly. Exactly. So that's, you know, that comes from the structure of the security side of things. Mm-hmm. If you have that governance side, that flows down into the architecture. Now, architecture, security architecture is two words. Security and architecture. Two different things. Just like application architecture are two different things. Applications yeah. and architecture. Network, architecture. You have people that are coming out of those areas focusing on architecture. So you can view things as, you can put somebody in doing security architecture that's a security guy working on architecture, or you can take an architect that happens to specialize in security. Most people will take a security guy and have them dabble in architecture. As a result, they're not really good at designing and building, but they know security. Yes, yeah. Right, but they're as a result, they're not going to be coming up with solutions, which is what an architect does. They're going to come up with reasons not to do something. Right, right. So, the security architect, to me, there's two types. 
there is a, the guy that um, focuses on solutions specific to security. Uh, firewalls. He wants to design firewalls. He wants to be designing intrusion detection systems. He wants to be designing uh, um, uh, identity and access management solutions. <laughs> so these are these are really applications of security themselves, exactly. not really applications of the business. Exactly. Versus the other type of security architect is the person that is supporting non-security projects. So, for example, you were talking about application development. Mm-hmm. If you have a project that's developing a new application, say, I don't know, something in the cloud. Um, an inventory management system, for example. Perfect. Okay, you're developing an inventory management uh, solution. There's going to be a security component in there. Everything has a security component in there. Yes. The security architect that supports non-security projects also has to be in there on helping things. So you'd be talking about, okay, what type of users are you talking about? How are they going to authenticate into that solution? Um, what uh, are you logging things? How is the data flowing from one server to another in that solution? There's a number of different components in there that are security-related, but they're yes. not dedicated security. You understand the Absolutely. difference? Absolutely. And, you know, just this one example, like an inventory management system, you could have other, other applications uh, accessing it through service layers, um, you know, a- APIs, getting at products and, and inventory levels versus uh, web front end going at it where users uh, are managing I- inventory, allowing them to, to put, uh, uh, say, uh, parts in on hold or deactivate parts, and then end users who might want to come at it from a different perspective where they want to consume and order parts. So you exactly. know, there's all these different end user requirements that you have to build in that security exactly. too. And so all these different components of your solution have to work together. Well, there's a security component to each one of these things. So yes. from a, for example, if you break that, your example down, you have an end user sitting at their desk accessing your inventory management solution back in the data center. How are they going to get there? They're going to travel across the network. Great. That's the network architecture. It's helping with the routing, the, the uh, um, making sure that the bandwidth is appropriate so that you can actually get there and not have slow responses. The security comes in in saying, okay, now do we have to worry about maybe using SSL going across that right. network for that inventory management solution, right? Security is a component of network architecture and, and at your application level. If you're, it, or it, let's go one step up. Now you're talking about the infrastructure. You're talking about the servers. Okay. Have those servers been hardened? What ports need to be opened on those servers? Who are the administrators going in there? How do you monitor what's going on the, on those servers? How do you apply patches to those servers? All these things are questions that security gets involved in. Right. But they're not necessarily security questions. 
Yes, there, so, there are architecture questions, you know, but they 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 have their basis in in security, securing the the information that your application accesses. Exactly. So most people, when they talk about security, they talk from an insurance point of view. They talk in terms of if this happens you'll be out millions of dollars. Or if that happens, or what will you do if? It's the insurance ploy. That's yeah. how 98% of people, uh, security people talk. It's all about insurance. But yes. the way things are going to start shifting, and it's all, you can already see it because people are no longer just responding because of, uh, of the insurance conversation. They're starting to understand that it's actually a quality control conversation. Perfect. So think back to your application development uh, side of things. People just used to write applications and not worry about whether there were uh, um, bugs in the code. But it got very expensive to keep fixing those bugs until they started implementing quality control in the application development process. Yes. Uh, sorry to interrupt you, Neil. Um, we have to take a quick break here again, um, but I want to make sure we we uh, capture where we're we're at and you know dealing with the quality assurance aspect of software. I guess is hitting the crux of the nail on the head when it comes to security. I mean, you can't have have a quality application or a secure application that doesn't uh, go through the rigors of quality assurance testing. So when we come back, we'll we'll pick up where we uh, where we're leaving off, talking about the quality assurance aspects, uh, how that impacts your your security threat or your the impact of uh, security threats against your system and how those can be manifested. So thanks again with uh, for Neil joining us. This is the Art of Software. We'll be right back after these short commercial breaks. Thanks, Neil. America Business Network, the bottom line in business. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacy at lacytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Hi, welcome back to The Art of Software. I'm Martin Lacey. We're talking today with Neil Rerup, who authored the latest book, uh, Hands-On Cybersecurity for Architects. Uh, We're going through the various layers, approaches to cybersecurity threats, how to manage and mitigate them, looking into software applications and what we should be doing as software architects, as software professionals, and as engineers who are building these applications for businesses, what we should be looking at and addressing to ensure that our products what we build, our software, is of the highest quality and uh, it, it is the most resilient to cyber security threats and attacks. 
So with that in mind, let's return with Neil and get into the quality uh, assurance aspects of software development. Welcome back, Neil. Thanks for having me. So we were talking about okay, quality so- assurance. Uh, before the break, if you could uh, sort of bring us back up up to speed where, where you've seen uh, quality assurance start to play a role in software development and how to ensure that uh, the, the patterns exposed um, through cybersecurity threats are, are addressed and how we, how we employ those, those, those techniques. So when we just before the break, I mentioned how the past people used to vast majority of security people talk from an insurance point of view what happens right. if this happens what happens with that, if that happens the direction things are starting to go and quite honestly you need to really start to shift that the conversation to is more one of quality assurance if you think of a vulnerability vulnerabilities vast majority of vulnerabilities are embedded into poor coding practices. Totally agree. All that is is just a very specific type of bug in code. Yep. Now, it's not you know a usability bug. It's a security bug, but it's a bug is still a bug. So it, when you start thinking about it, instead of from an insurance point of view, but from a quality assurance point of view, all of a sudden you start to understand why including security in your application development processes or into basically into the implementation of any project, whether it's application or infrastructure or anything else, if you include it in the process of developing your solutions, the end product is going to be a lot more secure and it's a lot cheaper than trying to have to deal with a vulnerability you found after the fact. Yeah, um, oh, yeah, in, totally. So just as with um, quality assurance, again, if you go back to thinking about the cost of fixing a bug once an application is in, uh, a per, in production, the cost of fixing that bug is thousands of dollars, more, uh, thousands of times more expensive to fix than if you had caught it way back at the beginning of your development process. Yes. Right? So most of the issues come about, we'll start off right from the beginning, and you mentioned it earlier in the show, comes from proper requirements gathering. Right. Most people don't do a good job gathering requirements. Right? Yeah. So... Those are gaps right there already. Exactly. So if you don't find the right requirements, by the time you're towards the end and you're getting close to implement and somebody says, well, what about this? Now you have to go all the way back. You have to start that design process. You have to code. You have to test that code. You have to integrate the code with the other code that you've already made. And all of a sudden you're starting to get the problem that Microsoft had with all that spaghetti code. Yeah, things get tacked on, tack on, tack on. And of course, security isn't tacked on, so yeah. it gets missed. So it, it, it's, it's not – ignore the fact that it's security. And I'm using air quotes. You, you can't see me across the radio, but yeah. you use air quotes <laughs> around security. It's not 
security in air quotes. It's a bug in air quotes. It just happens to be a specific type of bug. So go back to your requirements. Look at, make sure you're gathering all the requirements properly right across the board. And you start off at that business requirements. Now, if you only have like 10 requirements, I guarantee you, you haven't done a good job in gathering the requirements. Okay, but the vast majority of people out there, when they do their requirements gathering, they'll have ten things maybe. They don't go and talk to the stakeholders that are going to make be supporting it. Well, who are these stakeholders? You, if you're an architect, you should be going out to talking to your stakeholders. Can you yourself, Martin? I'm going to use you as an example. Sure. Who are some some We'll go back to your inventory management uh, um, uh, solution from the last segment. Who would some of the stakeholders be? Uh, in that particular case, uh, well, it, it would uh, fall all the way down line down the line from uh, a CEO who, of course, is running the, the the organization. He would have representatives from um, from product control, uh, from sales, and from marketing. Right. Um, right. So the, these people. are all yeah. The different groups that are involved in, in making sure that they that their their needs are represented. Yeah. Um, Various different business groups. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, and so you know, pulling out requirements for each from each of those different mindsets uh, builds sometimes conflicting design requirements. So you have to. Uh, Pull them together, build a consensus, or have have a subset of those people rep- representatives who say they'll make the decisions on behalf of everyone else. And of course, uh, you've got the CEO or someone who's at the C level suite who uh, has the authority to rule on decisions that that the groups can't decide upon. So, everything you said is bang on, but you've made a very common mistake that. of the people out there make is you ignored a completely huge stakeholder group. And that's the IT people that actually have to support the solution. Of course. Right? So if you have, for example, you want to put your inventory management solution in and you're looking at this product and it only sits on Linux machines. Great. Okay, we're going to put it in. Turns out your IT department, they only have Windows expertise in there. Yeah. Okay, we've, we've missed a requirement of it sitting on Linux machines. Um, network gear. Well, we're doing a shift to cloud solutions, but you were looking at, uh, um, maybe you were looking at something that you want to put in your own data center or vice versa. Um, you're dealing with uh, uh, critical, the inventory management is critical to your infrastructure, so you don't want it going out to the cloud. But you yourself were looking at a cloud solution. Uh, totally. I mean, where's the policy? Is there governance saying that we can't? Exactly. So, but you went, just like vast majority of people do, you went and you went and looked at what the end users want. But you yeah. forgot the support systems. Now, Here's the other aspect. You were talking a little earlier about APIs, remember? Yep. Well, that... Which is all... (laughs) It's down to the IT group to support the APIs. But you're also talking about integration with other systems. Yes. 
so that's where, for example, enterprise service buses most organizations have nowadays. That they are put in there so you can use service-oriented architecture where you're you have common interfaces and you you can reuse the same interface over and over and over again and it lowers your cost for de- uh, developing your applications. Right. Absolutely. Right. But again, maybe you're working on some sort of uh, um, JSON uh, uh, interface, but the solution that you're looking at from the business point of view doesn't have JSON as for interfaces. All of a sudden, you're not able to integrate with your enterprise services bus. Okay. Right. Now that, and that's just from the integration point of view. What about, okay, now we've taken the solution and put it into place. Who's going to monitor it? Who's going to support it once it's in production? Right. Okay. Now let's put on the security hat. I'm a security guy, and I want to make sure that nothing happens to your solution. That means I need to get the logs from your solution into my monitoring solution. Okay. Was that part of your requirements gathering? Right. Yes. I totally missed. so, but but here's the thing, Martin. That's that is the way the vast majority of people are. What I talk about in the book all the time is using standardized templates. Yeah. So that every time you learn something, you'll doc, you'll you'll improve that template, and then you can reuse it and reuse it and reuse it, and you get better and better and better at doing it. Yes. So now, next time you have you work on a solution yourself. You're not just talking to the end users. We've already talked about integration to ESB, support from the security team. You'll probably keep that in your mind next time you're working on a project. You've improved. So it goes right. back to what was really popular back in the uh, 90s, the ISO, what was it, ISO 9000? Yeah, ISO 9000, all about quality control. Yes. You know, continuous improvement. And that, that's kind of uh, where, where, you know, some of the uh, clients I now have, um, that, that's part of their mantra is, is uh, continuous improvement. So it's not about the big bang. It's, it's about the iterative cycle, making sure that you, you have a reflection at the end of a project. You take a look at what you've done, what you've learned, make sure that goes back into the next project. And that's your, your patterns and templates and your repeatable process. Exactly. Now, there are going to be times where you do not gather all the requirements. You've tried. You forgot something. That happens. Nobody's perfect, except my wife. (laughs) Well, we've got Um, two competing in that that realm. (laughs) There you go. Anyway, so what you want to do is when you come up with new requirements uh, partway through the process, Rather than now building it in, because it would be really expensive, you create a new phase for the project. Right. So think in terms of you know the agile approach to uh, application development. You want to create yes. something and then put it into production, and then create another piece of it, put it into production, and then another piece and put it into production. If you go back and restart the entire process, you'll never get done. No, so well, exactly. So take a new, whatever requirements you've collected, new ones that you've found after you've got past the requirements gathering stage, tack it on to a new phase. 
it'll be a lot cheaper in the long run. And that's actually where I'd, I I want to uh, bring us to a close, for at least for this this segment. So we before we go to commercials, um, and because I want to dig further into the agile methodology and how we can ensure security patterns and practices are ingrained in that iterative style of software creation. Uh, so we'll we'll come back and explore that in our final segment with Neil Rerup. Thanks again, Neil, for joining us. This is the Art of Software. Art of Software. I am Martin Lacey, your host. We'll be back just after these short commercial breaks. Thanks for joining us. From the boardroom to you, Voice America Business Network. You are tuned into The Art of Software with Martin Lacey. To connect with the show today, you may call into 1-866-472-5790. Again, that's 1-866-472-5790. If you'd prefer to send an email, you may send it to m.lacey at laceytechnology.com. Now, back to The Art of Software. Hi, I'm Martin Lacey, and welcome back to The Art of Software. Today, we're talking with Neil Rerup, going over uh, what uh, he's um, articulated in his new book, Hands-On Cybersecurity for Architects, as well as exploring in detail what that means to software architects who are building solutions for businesses using the latest uh, methodology, Agile, doctrine and exploring how to put those agile microservices into the cloud via containerization. So that's all the latest technology, but still we got to keep on thinking of uh, security quality. Quality is the key um, that it, that when it's not uh, taken care of and addressed properly, exposes threats and those or exposes security opportunities for threats to attack you. So uh, let's continue on with that with uh, Neil. Um, what can you tell us, Neil, about um, uh, building in um, that that mechanism for thinking about so- software security and quality assurance through the agile process? Okay. So let me do a quick synopsis of, really quick synopsis of the waterfall, and then tie that into the agile because it's, the approach is, there's a lot to learn from the, the waterfall side of things. Right. Waterfall is a very linear methodology. There's gates. You don't move forward until you pass that gate. Each of the phases are very standard. You'll have your requirements gathering, your design, your coding, uh, uh, um, your integration. Uh, your, you'll have your testing, and then you'll move it into production. General phases. In each one of these phases are things you can do from security. You'll have your security requirements and requirements gathering. When you put together your architecture, you're specifying how the the security architecture components will be put into place to meet those security requirements. The uh, When you're doing your coding, there should be a standard way of checking uh, manually or peer review, that sort of thing, from a security point of view. You'll do your code testing 
again, there's code testing tools that you can yeah. use at that testing phase. And then when you turn it over to production, you can do, say, hashing of the code so that you know whether uh, what's in production is still the approved stuff. That's your, what you would normally see in your waterfall uh, methodology. The agile is meant to be a lot quicker. Instead of aiming for perfect, which is what the waterfall is, you end up having the, um, uh, um, you're looking for quick wins, functionality that can be leveraged right away. So you'll create one, and then you'll work on uh, adding another piece, and then another piece. But the process from the waterfall still matches in that agile. So when you have that small chunk, what are the requirements that you're trying to meet with that first initial phase in the Agile? Um, somebody's writing code. Okay, great. Are they following approved processes for coding of that little process? And a lot of people will, like I said earlier, use templates. Um, if you're doing the input-outputs, are you doing validation of your input-outputs uh, type of thing? Um, and these are standard templates you can use for your coders as they're writing the code for that in the Agile uh, methodology. You're going to end up having to test it. Okay, great. Let's just throw that small piece of uh, code through a, uh, either a black box or a white box tester. Right. And so on and so forth. But it's the, the methods that are in the waterfall line up with the Agile just as well. It's just, it's smaller chunks. It's kind of like a fractal, a fractal pattern. It, it applies exactly. at a big scale and at a small scale. Exactly, exactly. So when they're doing things, Agile is, is meant for quick wins, but yeah. you still have to write the code. You still have to test the code. You still have to make sure the code is doing what you wanted it to do in the first place, which are those requirements. Right. Mm-hmm. So in each one of those small components, you just want to have that security check in there from a quality control perspective. So look at how quality control and quality assurance is built into the Agile, and then apply security in the same way. And I, I presume then it, it would be of the greatest benefits to to write, you know, to to do your Agile in a uh, test-driven uh, design methodology, so you're actually constructing your tests before the code. So you're you're validating your rules and your requirements as part of the um, uh, the creation of your software artifacts. Well, remember that when you're creating your test scripts, is not after the build, because the tendency then, or after your coding, because the tendency is then is to create your tests. That will validate everything that you just coded. Yeah, which is, yeah, yeah, exactly. Right? So normally when you create your test testing what you built. Yeah. What you want to do is you want to create that back at your design when you're doing your actual design side of things. Right. Because that way your tests are based on what the design is. But everything, whether it's waterfall methodology or agile methodology, always has to be driven by the requirements. So your design, and you check back with the requirements. You write your test script, make sure you're testing to meet those requirements. Then you write your code, 
and you want, you're writing your code to meet those requirements. It's an iterative process, even within Agile. Right. And then at, by the end of that phase, the end of that particular component, you have a solution uh, that is working and is a lot more secure, simply because you're always going back to the requirements. And by the way, not just secure. You have a higher ability to be successful with your project simply because you're always tying back to those requirements, whether those right. are security requirements or some other type of requirements. Yeah, well, that, that's that's kind of a key tenet to building a uh, what I would call a quality business application is one that meets the objectives of the business and clearly articulates uh, the 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 needs of of those business um, personnel, so they can act, actually achieve and you know do the greater things that they need with their business. Yeah, it's it's all in support of the business objectives, which goes yeah. back to your business strategy, your business plan, and security has to be supporting that as well. Security can't be done for security's sake. Security has to be done to support the business. Great. You want to um, be quicker to the market. Great. How can security help with that? Well, maybe single sign-on, which speeds up the authentication process. Right. Great. Maybe it's um, we're going to the cloud. Okay, we need to put in federation. Great. Okay. Um, We also want to reduce our costs. Well, that means we need to... Maybe reduce the uh, um, the the risks that we have as well. There's a balancing act. So security is needs to always be supporting where the business is going. Right, and I yeah, I think that's that's a, the, probably the key takeaway is security um, is absolutely necessary, but it has to be coming from the business need. Exactly, it's always driven by business. It's not driven security for security's sake. If the business isn't able to do its business, what's the end result? Everybody's out of a job. Yes. Well, you know, they do say the most secure computer is one that's unplugged and turned off. <laughs> well, they're finding you know, ways the around out that of business, now. You've done your job then. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, that's so, excellent. All right, Neil. Well, this has been a very fascinating conversation with you. Uh, it's been a joy having you on the uh, show today. Uh, hopefully, we've um, uh, given some architects out there uh, inspiration to do some digging, make sure that quality uh, is not only an aspect of their projects, but through each iteration and allowing them to get the budget to make sure that the security aspect is what drives it and you know coming from a from the business need of course and you have to make sure the business is aware of the security um, issues that they need to be uh, raised up as a requirement as well so it's kind of a push and yeah. shove thing Re- real quick Merton when yep. you talk about budgets remember if somebody says we don't have the budget for a new firewall or something like that well a quick way an architect can win is by trying to leverage non-security projects to improve the security posture of your company. Right. As part of an part part of the business application in general. Exactly. So you have yeah. a budget for a, a, an application if it's done properly. 
budget on that application may be able to be used for improving the security posture of your organization. Excellent point. Excellent point. Thank you very much, Neil. You've been uh, listening to The Art of Software with your host, Martin Lacey and Neil Rerup, um, who is an expert in the cybersecurity field, as well as um, operator and owner of his own um, company, uh, Chief Security Architect. Uh, what's your company name, Neil? Enterprise Cybersecurity Architects. Enterprise Cybersecurity Architects. here in Vancouver. Fantastic. Thank you very much, Neil. It's been a joy having you. Uh, We'll uh, be talking to you soon. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you for listening to The Art of Software. Be sure to join your host, Martin Lacey, again next Thursday at 1 p.m. Eastern Time and 10 a.m. Pacific Time for another edition of our program on the Voice America Business Channel. Until we talk again, have a great week.